Well, as you find that passage again, First Thessalonians 5, do have it open, uh, please, in front of you. It will help you immensely as we look at it together. Um, as you're finding that, I want you to imagine your life, your Christian life, I want you to imagine it as a wheel. That's an odd idea, I know, isn't it? But uh, think about everything we know about wheels. At the very heart of a wheel is a hub, a core, and then there are spokes out, aren't there, from the hub to the rim of the wheel, all the, the lines heading out from the center. It's a helpful image, I think, for the Christian life, because the Christian life has both a core, a heart, a hub, something at the very middle, and it has various strands that lead out to the edges. What is at the heart of the Christian life? What is at the hub? It's very important to get this right, isn't it? There are lots of good things and absolutely essential things in the Christian life that actually, actually, actually we shouldn't want to put at the hub, at the heart. Essential things, but not at the hub. Evangelism. Daily quiet times and praying, being at church, all good things, but not the hub. Now, he, he, here's what I think the hub of the wheel is. Love. Love. Love for God and love for others. What did Jesus say when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now those two things, that's why Jesus summarized everything down to those two things. Because that is the the ten commandments in a nutshell, isn't it? You know the first four commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And then when you get after the first four, you get the next six commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. First commandment, love God, have no other gods before me. Next six commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. No adultery, no murder, no stealing. Why not? Because they are not loving your neighbor. I hope you know that. All law is about love. When that speeding ticket lands on your mat, apparently, it is not just law we've broken, is it? But it is love. We've failed it. Now the policeman's not interested in love, but that's what he's telling you when he knocks your window. Says, do you know what speed you were doing? You are not loving your neighbor. This letter, 1 Thessalonians, is all about Paul's longing for this church to have that hub right at the very center of their lives. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, Verse 11, now may, chapter 3, verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It's all about love, growing in love, increasing in love. Here's the thing, that hub of love needs spokes doesn't it a rim and a hub are both needed or the wheel goes nowhere a hub is good but it needs outward spokes it needs to move God never intends us to love him and to love our neighbor in the privacy of our own bedrooms 
It's not how he intended the world to work, is it? No, that love will flow outwards always. It will take concrete form by walking in a certain way, living in a certain way. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Do you see it? I want you, I want you to love more and more. And I want you to live in a certain way more and more. So what we're going to do here this evening, as we look at this odds and ends drawer of chapter 5, verses 12 to 28, I want to show us three different spokes. Here are three different areas of life in which, with love at the heart, we can please God. This will be pleasing to God. Chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to please God. You will do it if you do these three things. And what Paul is doing here is he's, it's practical, it's what we want, isn't it, always, in sermons, application, practical things. Paul is working out in nitty gritty and real life practical detail what it means to be a family. In real life detail what it means to treat one another as brothers and sisters, all to do with our relationships in church. So here's the three things to do this evening. Number one, esteem your leaders. Number two, cherish your family, your church family. And number three, consider your worship. Esteem your leaders, cherish your family, consider your worship. We're not surprised, are we, at all that relationships of love are at the heart of pleasing God. So here's a life of love. A life of love. Number one, the first area, the love of a church towards its leaders. So often, hopefully, you're used to hearing about the love of leaders for people, for the flock. But what does love of leaders look like from the people to the pastor and the elders? Look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. See, I think in these verses, Paul is steering, if you like, he's steering a middle path between the the two extremes of saying, on the one hand, pastors and elders in a church are everything. That's the position that has been known as clericalism. The clergy have all the power, all the glory, everything belongs to them. And what the clergy do is they send down diktats to all the rest of the church from on high. And Paul is steering a middle path between that extreme and the other extreme, which is anti-clericalism. Which says, no, we all have different gifts and the body needs all the different gifts. So within the church, the people devoted to leading and preaching and shepherding are redundant. We don't need them. We're all the same in Christ. So we should all do all the same things. Paul is saying no here to both extremes. Notice... There are some in the church who are over you. Now we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, what that means. So Paul is not anti-clergy. But look where the clergy do their work from. From an ivory tower up high. No, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. You... Your clergy are not sent to you once a year from denominational HQ to cut a purple ribbon or to smash a bottle or to open a village hall. 
And then you crack on. No, they, they work hard among you. The sense is beside you, with you, as one of you, even as over you. And for people who do that, there is a way to please God in your relationship to them. And that is to esteem them, to respect them. Hold them in the highest possible regard, is another translation. Do you see the reason? Do you see the reason why they're meant to do that? What does Paul say? Is it because they're our type of person? They're from the same part of town with the same educational background. Their kids go to school with our kids and so we all get on really well. They're the kind of people we naturally like to be with and love. No. Why, Why esteem them like this? Because of their work. Because of their work. Now... You will know, it's true, isn't it? It used to be the case in years past that ministers in society were held in really high regard in society, weren't they? I think possibly in the same way that we know today there are certain jobs that people do that carry weight and respect. The doctor, the lawyer, the the army general, the top solicitor. But for ministers, it's not like that anymore, is it? What's the cultural presentation of the minister, Vicar of Dibley? Father Ted, it's very important to see this. The church has itself to blame for this, not the culture. When you see ministers portrayed in that way, it is the church's fault, not the culture's fault. See, I think churches in in decades past went through this phase where ministers were held in high regard in society... But actually were beginning to hold low status in their own churches because they were not doing the work of a minister among their people. They just enjoyed the status. And because they were not doing the work of the minister but just enjoying the status of the minister, churches began to decline. The gospel began to disappear. And with the decline of church and the marginalizing of Christian faith, so the status of ministers has gone hand in hand with it. Ministers are as irrelevant culturally as churches are irrelevant culturally. You see, Paul Paul here is not telling the outside world to have a high view of ministers. It's unusual in the world for society to ever view a minister with high regard. If the worldwide norm is hatred of Christians and persecution of Christians, then it's usually the pastors and elders who are normally first in the firing line, isn't it? Now here Paul is telling the church... To hold its shepherds in high esteem because of their work. Do you see the implication? Do you see what Paul is saying? If there is no hard work among the people, then no high esteem. It's not, it's not someone's status that means you should esteem them, but their work among you. No hard work, no high regard. But where there is hard work, Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. Especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the labourer deserves his wages. This is working hard among you. And it's the first here of three things Paul says about Christian leaders. Just look again at the verse and trace them out with me. They work hard, they are over you, and they admonish you. 
Those are the three things about the Christian leader. They work hard, they are over you, and they admonish you. Just think about each of them with me. The hard-working minister. It's a significant phrase, isn't it? One of my neighbours, uh, not long ago... Um, Several people have done this to me over the years, but it happened to me uh, several months ago. I went out to get in the car Sunday morning, and he said to me, it must be great to only have one day a week to work. Off, off to work today. And he said it with a great smile on his face. Got his Sunday paper tucked under his arm. And there's no point in being defensive about it, is there? It is not untrue to say that pastoral work can be a great hidey hole for skivers. People who likely wouldn't last very long in the real world can find a pretty safe haven in ministry, usually under the wing of a senior pastor on a large staff team. Think about it. Large parts of your day unaccounted for to others and the temptations of BBC Sport and Twitter and so on. They're they're not, they're not ones that people in pastoral work are immune to. Church work can be a cushy little number for some people. And Paul says, when it is an easy ride for the people who lead you, then something is wrong, for the work is hard work. The the, the verb there, for those who labor among you, it's the same word that's used for manual occupations. Those of you who are sweating with your hands, toiling, striving, struggling, Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy to refer to farm labourers. And if you've ever done some work on a farm or seen people working on a farm, you've seen the sweat and the aching muscles, haven't you? Paul uses the same word to refer to the hard work of his colleagues, to those who who labour in preaching and teaching. That's why their remuneration, he says, is worthy of double honour. That's the first reason. Their work is hard work. Secondly, we're to respect our leaders because they are over us. This is the the topsy-turvy, upside-down world of Christian leadership, isn't it? Friends, don't fear those words over you. Over you. I hope you don't. The very first thing that needs to be said about Christian leaders of all kinds, from the newest teacher in Sunday school right the way through to the Archbishop of Canterbury, The first thing that needs to be said about them is that they are under shepherds, under Christ. Which means that before they are ever over any people, they are under him. And because they are under Christ, that means they are never over other people as Lord. But only over people as servants. The chief mark of Christian leaders is humility, not authority. Gentleness, not power. And yet, in that gentleness, there is a kind of being under Christ, which is also a form of being over others. See, you've maybe forgotten it already, but think about what Paul has shown us in this letter about his own relationship to the Thessalonians. And when, when you see Paul's relationship to the Thessalonians, we see what it means to be under Christ while at the same time being over others. What metaphors does Paul use in chapter 2 to describe his relationship to the Thessalonians? Do you remember? He called himself what? A mother and a father. 
And this, this word here, over, in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12, it's the same word that's used for heads of villages or chiefs or landlords or estate managers. The same word that's used for guardians of children. It is not a word for someone who stands over other people in isolation from them, removed from them like a dictator, but someone who stands over them like a parent. See, I'm like a father to you, Paul says. Ask yourself, when does a father feel most like a father? Okay? Is it when he's disciplining his children? Let me suggest to you there is something wrong there. If the man who's disciplining his children feels like, wow, this is, re- this is what I was made for. This is it. What a rush. Feel the power. Look at the tears. No, any father will tell you he feels most like a father with his child in his arms. Or beside him on the floor building Lego or a jigsaw. It's precisely because the father is over the child that makes those moments what they are. What does the child want? He wants the one who is over him to be beside him. With him. The luxury of hours wasted on him. Pastoral care is parental care and pastoral care is Christ-like care. You cannot lead people or be an elder to people or labor among people, preaching Christ to people without being like Christ, who was Lord over all, and yet what did he do? Stoop down to be under all. Stoop to wash and to clean and to suffer. This is what, this is what John Stock calls the startling originality of Jesus. In God's kingdom, the first are last, the leaders are servants, the chiefs are slaves. And yet, look at the last phrase, admonish you. Respect those, hold in high esteem those who admonish you. It's a word that means to warn against bad behaviour. To warn against its consequences, to reprove, it's, it's a negative word. Here is, here is the idea of gentle warning. Alongside positive instruction, the, the laboring of ministry, here is gentle warning. One, one commentator says this tone, the tone of this verse is brotherly, but it is big brotherly. Brotherly, but it is big brotherly. And I've come to think that everybody is okay with verse 12, with admonishment in principle, until it happens in practice. Here's a gentle admonition from a pastor to his congregation. And immediately, yes, but, people say, isn't that what the child says when you ask them about something? Yes, but, the defenses go up, don't they? You don't understand my way. You don't understand my life, my temptations. A session, a group of elders who are committed to admonishing. Well, there's a thing, isn't it? No one ever asks for it. Very few churches really want it. And yet when that happens, what you have is the second half of verse 13. Where shepherds treat the sheep like this and sheep treat the shepherds like that, people live at peace with one another. 
So there's the first point. Esteem your leaders. Number two, cherish each other. Cherish each other. What does it look like to please God in relationship? Me to you and you to me. Each of us to each other. It looks like cherishing. Regarding each other. What is cherishing? Here, here's my own attempt to define it. Regarding each other with careful love and close attention. It looks like family, not a club. We are not an organization. We are a family. So clear, isn't it? At the start of verse 14, we urge you, brothers. And then you get all these verbs. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. No paying back wrong for all. You did that, so I'm going to do this to you. No kindness to everyone. Now I think, I think one of the reasons for the massive decline in the public perception of the status of a minister, one of the reasons is because where a minister stops serving the people of God with the word of God and stops serving God and the gospel of God, stops trying to please God and instead starts trying to please people, where that happens then what you get is only a very, very nice minister. The minister is a lovely, kind old man, always joyful, always thankful. But of course, if the minister is putting God and the gospel first and serving those things first, you will have a minister, yes, who is all those things from verse 15 onwards, and from verse 14 onwards and verse 15 onwards, you will have a minister who is all those things, but who also warns the idle, admonishes the lazy. What do they say maketh the man? Learning and reading. Learning and reading maketh the man. Well, teaching and admonition maketh the church leader. As well as encouragement and patience and joy and prayer. And friends, Paul is saying here, so it is with the church family. Do we ever warn each other? Have you ever been warned by another church member? Maybe we do. I hope we do. We need to, don't we? From, from time to time, the arm around the shoulder and the evidently loving care for one another that then says to somebody, look, it's time to stop this. It's time to change. Time to move on. Notice what Paul is doing here. Do you, do you see how, in a way, anti-clerical he is? It's, it's not the leaders here he's urging to give pastoral care to the congregation, but the congregation to give pastoral care to the congregation. We urge you, brothers, all of you, to do verse 14. And I know this happens. It is a great joy to me. Week by week, I talk to some people who say, oh, I was talking to so-and-so, and I tried to help them with that, or... Uh, maybe wouldn't put it like this, but I can see what they've done is they've come alongside someone, tried to steer someone, tried to help them. Now the presence of leaders in verse 12, it never relieves a church from the responsibilities of care for each other. Admonish the idle. This, this word here for idle, it actually came to be used of people who played truant at school. Uh, I, when I was growing up, I never had the guts. When I look back, I, I can't believe I never tried to play truant. My mum and dad used to put us on the bus, put us on the bus, send us half an hour into Belfast, and then we'd be home by four o'clock. I mean, they, they didn't have a clue what we were doing all day long. 
Maybe you did it. You know, you get all dressed up for school, you head out the door, you kiss your mum, lunchbox under your arm, but then you get to where you're meant to go and you about face and you spend the day fishing in the river or whatever it is. Uh, My dad did it once, simply walked out of school and trundled the three miles home. And when he got there, his dad simply put him on the back of the tractor, took him straight back to school. (laughs) It's okay in children, isn't it? Children finding their way in the world. But what happens when the truant child becomes the truant 20-year-old, 25-year-old? This is a word for somebody who has an irresponsible attitude to the obligation to work. That's what it is. An irresponsible attitude to the obligation to work. To the work-shy person who would happily fritter away their lives rather than help others. Encourage the faint-hearted. I I wonder if the faint-hearted are the people there in chapter 4 verse 13. People who've lost loved ones grieving. If you've not experienced faint-heartedness, then our time will come, your time will come. We, we young people will grow faint and anxious and fearful and weak-kneed. Well, I want to include uh, verse 16, uh, rejoicing. I'm going to include this in my final point here. Uh, esteem your leaders, cherish each other. Number three, to finish, consider your worship. Consider your worship. If you look at verse 16 down to the end, now this is a new thing when I looked at this this week. It is not automatically obvious, is it, that this is about worship. I don't know about you, but you, I certainly read 16 down to the end as personal, telling, telling me what I should be doing individually. But actually, in the original language, these are all plural verbs. In other words, look at verse 16. All of you rejoice always. Verse 17. All of you together pray without ceasing. All of you give thanks in all circumstances. These are descriptions of what the corporate life of the church should look like. You see it, verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It's the idea of, here's what's appropriate when you gather a way of greeting each other. Paul is saying if you want to know how the hub of love connects to the wheel of the Christian life, here is what your gathered worship should look like. Here's what love for God means. Four things. Four things, verse 16. It means rejoicing together. Rejoice always. It means our worship should be joyful, our singing. But doesn't it mean something like this morning? Two precious Children born, twins born to one family, and yet the joy is overflowing within our church family to others, rejoicing always in other people's joys. Church life should be joyful. What about verse 17? Church life should be prayerful together. Notice again, this is not a command to you to go home and pray without ceasing. What's it a command to do? To pray with your church family without ceasing. The whole church should be praying together. If if I have a sorrow in Trinity Church life, it is here. Here in verse 17. Our church family desire to pray. Listen to John Stott. Here's what he says. 
explaining this verse. If praise, rejoicing, verse 16, is one indispensable element of public worship, prayer is another. Each congregation should accept the responsibility to engage in serious intercession, not only during Sunday services, but at a midweek prayer meeting as well. We should be praying for our own church members far and near, for the church throughout the world, its leaders, praying for the church's love of God's truth, its holiness, its unity, its mission. We should be praying for our nation, parliament and government. We should be praying for a just, free, compassionate society, for world mission, especially for places and people resistant to the gospel. We should be praying for peace, justice and environmental stewardship. We should be praying for the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless and the sick. I sometimes wonder if the comparatively slow progress towards world peace and world world evangelization is not due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. This is a command, isn't it? It is a command that flows to us from God's heart of love to his people. And brothers and sisters, as we read it together, I think it's for you individually to decide whether this comes to you as an admonition or not this evening. Church family praying together. See, two of our greatest resources, money and time, two of our greatest resources, I think they tend to be where we, where we mislead ourselves the most. Well, money and time, what, what, what do we say about both of them? We don't have enough of either. Isn't that right? Is that what we always say? Don't have enough money and don't have enough time. I'd love more time and I'd love more money. But actually, I don't think it's true. I think we always find a way of spending money on what we want to spend money on. And we always find the time to do what we really want to do. Isn't that true? Money and time. We always find a way of doing what we want to do and spending what we want to spend. Is there here, Paul says, is there a simple desire to pray together? As often as we can and as much as we can. Church life should be joyful, prayerful. Church life should be grateful together. Give thanks in all circumstances. Such a challenge, isn't it? Grateful in all circumstances. Gratitude is the heart's thermometer. You want to take your own spiritual temperature. Don't don't look at how often you go to church, how often you read your Bible. Check your gratitude. How, How thankful are you? Grumbling, the opposite of gratitude. Grumbling is the devil's music. And I know in my own life, when I've lost daily gratitude to God, I begin very quickly to lose everything else. Church life should be rejoicing, joyful, prayerful, grateful. And here's verse 19. Church life should be receptive. Listening to God's word with an open mind and a humble heart. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now my view that what Paul is referring to in verse 20 is, he's simply referring to the fact that God gives some people a remarkable degree of insight into the scriptures. Or into how how the scriptures should be applied in a particular case. 
That is the Spirit's fire among us. His word unleashed with real depth and meaning and power. And sometimes that happens not just from the person at the front doing the teaching. I saw two people in church, I think I mentioned it several weeks ago, praying together at the end of the service. Talking, sharing, praying. Do not quench the Spirit's fire. Where all this happens, what you have, verse 21, you have a church that holds fast to the good and that hates the evil. We will not be a gullible church if we do all these things. Taken in by every time someone says, you know, I think we should try this. We, we test it and we run after the good and we pursue it and we grasp it. And we run in the opposite direction of things that are evil. We avoid them. Well, I'm finished. It's quite a list, isn't it? When you look at it, these final instructions. Add up all the verbs that Paul has given us here to do. And you're going to be exhausted, aren't you? Hold in high regard. Live in peace. Warn, encourage, be patient, be joyful, be grateful, be kind, be prayerful. Listen to God. Test, hold, avoid. And you see, when you see that list, the most important thing for all of us is not to see the list and miss the principle. Don't see all the spokes without seeing where they're anchored. They are anchored in heartfelt love for God and love for each other. So as you look at this list and you wonder, well, how can I practically warn someone or encourage or help or be kind? Here's here's the thing. First of all, make sure the person you are wondering about admonishing or encouraging or helping, make sure the person you are wondering about doing any one of those things to views you as a brother or a sister. When you start there, you are my family and you know you're my family and I know you're my family. When you start there, well, I think all these things just kind of happen, don't they? They fall into place. When we love each other, we find a way to encourage. When we love each other, we find a way to forgive. We we absorb the wrong and we don't pay it back. And we will never do that if our shared family life is less important to us than our own life. We won't do that if church is just a weekly attendance, not a shared relationship. But where it is those things, friends, where we have brothers and sisters, where we have mothers and fathers in the faith, then Paul says, those are lives that are pleasing to God. Amen.